This morning, our focus is going to be on the 32nd Psalm, a psalm that's fairly familiar to us. I want to take a moment to read that psalm, uh, to get that set into our hearts, and then have the opportunity later on for us to consider uh, this wonderful psalm from David. Let's begin Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength is dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you, teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the ones who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Good morning again. Great to see you here. In fact, it's really good to see you here after the new mask order. I thought, oh, no, we're going to be decimated. Uh, Glad that you came, mask and all. I think I'd rather preach to mask than nobody. So that would be good. If you have your Bible, let's go to Psalm 32. It's been a pleasure this week to um, meditate upon this passage and to think through some of its some of its great truths. It's a great challenge to our heart. A passage that contains a very important concept for us with regards to our walk with the Lord, our sanctification, our growth in Him. We live in a day when it's not really popular to talk about sin and about wrongdoing. It's a day when it's not popular to describe things using those words. We, we have euphemized some of those words in order to make them more palatable. And yet, when we do that, I think we remove a lot of hope from our lives and from the lives of others. Because one of the important things about our walk with the Lord is to be able to, is to, be able to call sin what it is. And Psalm 32 helps us come to grips with some of that in our own lives. This is a psalm that I imagine would have been hard for David to write um, and then to have recorded for all of time. And yet it's a psalm that gives us great hope and comfort in knowing that when we find ourselves in similar situations to where David found himself, that there, there is hope, there's answers, there are places to go. Psalm 32 is considered to be one of the seven penitential psalms in the book of Psalms. It's categorized oftentimes as a penitential psalm because it deals with an area of 
David's confession of sin. It's oftentimes linked to Psalm 51, and that theme in Psalm 51 being David's really explicit confession of sin to the Lord regarding his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. Psalm, 50, Psalm 32 is a little bit different than that, although I believe that there are similarities and although I believe that they do link up together with regards to that issue, and we'll look at that uh, in a minute or two. Psalm 32 is more of a reflection upon sin and failures within an individual's life. Rather than being a specific confession of sin to a specific breaking of God's law, I believe David probably wrote this sometime later than even maybe Psalm 51 and was using this as a way of kind of reflecting back on his life and thinking through lessons that he had learned with regards to failures in life that he had experienced. I'm really glad that David has done that because for all of us sitting in this room, life will not be without failures. And it's good to know that there are places in the scriptures that we can go when we face those failures. And when we begin to handle them, to think through them in a way that is honoring and glorifying to the Lord. And so David records for us here some reflections upon this psalm. And so it's a little bit different than Psalm 51 and yet working together with it as he reflects back on some of the failures of his own life. I want to divide this psalm into four stanzas. In fact, let me just note with you, if you look in the title of this psalm, it says a masculine of David. This is why some people do not put this into the penitential psalms, but actually include it here in more as an instruction. That's what that word literally means. So this is an instruction of David. This title given to it sometime after its writing as it was being used in the temple for worship. But I think it, it is an instruction about how a man who was after God's own heart handled failures in his own life. There are three other times a word appears in this psalm. It's the word selah. We've seen it before, and I know there have been comments made on it. But just to remind you, that again is probably a notation that came into this psalm once it was being used regularly in the worship of the temple. And it's a word that simply means stop and think about this. And so three times that word is penned here. And so sometimes this psalm is divided into three sections based on the positioning of these, these terms, Selah. As I've read through and, and as I meditated on this psalm and thought back over times that I've thought about it, it feels to me as though David has four stanzas that he gives us. He opens this psalm with a, with a, a thought process. He's going to give a contemplation, He's contemplating an ideal for life. Then he's going to move from there into a testimony. And then from that testimony, he'll move into an exhortation. And then he's going to end this psalm with a tremendous pro promise, a conclusion that comes in 
kind of a twist within a, within a contrast, and it'll be interesting for us to touch uh, briefly on that. So let's begin in that first stanza. Let's figure out what David is doing in this psalm. First of all, he gives us a contemplation. We read it, the first couple verses. It begins, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. The focus of this, con- of this contemplation happens to be on that idea and that concept of blessedness. Twice David will say, beginning both verse 1 and 2, blessed is the one, and in verse 2, blessed is the man. Now, the challenge we face in sometimes thinking through this psalm is a degree of familiarity with it. So that's a very familiar verse to us. We know that verse. And we may think we understand that word blessed, but I think it would do us well to think about what David is actually saying when he says, blessed is the one and blessed is the man. We sometimes tend to use the word blessing in uh, sometimes in sort of an inane way. We, we can use that to describe a number of different circumstances, a number of different experiences. We can use it in some really important situations, and we can use it in some not-so-important situations. We oftentimes are using that word to describe the emotion that we might feel over a certain, uh, certain set of circumstances. Sometimes we'll say to someone as they've shared a story with us, that's a real blessing. And what we probably mean by that is God has done something very special and that should make us all very happy and very joyous. In fact, if you were to take a lexical, just a lexical definition of this term blessed from the Hebrew language, it would be one of the first listings in that lexicon would be the word happiness. So while this word can mean that and can carry that meaning by its lexical uh, value, we all know that words generally mean what they mean within a context. So the question we want to ask this morning real quickly of this is what did what was in David's mind when he said blessed is the one? What was he describing? Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, okay? And when we do interpretation of Scripture, there are certain rules that you follow. And one of the rules involved in interpretation is what a rule called the law of first mention. You may have heard of that. The law of first mention means that when you're studying a concept or even a word in Scripture, One of the ways to derive its meaning is to go back to the very first place where that word was ever used. And then from there, we draw forward that context. Interestingly enough, this word blessed is first used in the book of Genesis chapter 1. In fact, take your Bible and go there. I want you to just look at this passage. We won't have time to develop it all, but I do want you to see where this word begins to take on its meaning in the Hebrew language. In verse 28, or let's back up to verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image. So we're in the creation account. We've just been through the seven or the six days, five days actually of creation. And now we come to this sixth day. And on the sixth day, God is going to create 
humankind. And in verse 26, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then I want you to notice verse 28, and it says, and God blessed them. This is the first use of the word blessed in the Hebrew scriptures. What a great context it's in. In fact, if you study out this verse, what it appears to be that, is, that Moses is saying is that God blessed them. And the way in which he blessed them was by creating them in his image. And by being created in the image of God, he created them with a purpose. Verse 28 goes on to say, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, it would be great to explore the entire context of this verse, but the point I want to make to you is that without question, in the mind of David, when he says in Psalm 32, blessed is the one or blessed is the man, has to be this part of the context. And in that meaning, that true blessedness in life comes as we as human beings live in harmony with God's intended purpose for our lives. There's a lot written today on the subject of human flourishing. What does it mean to flourish as an individual? What does it mean to really be a, a flourishing human being? And David here is going to enter into this discussion and one of the things he's going to say in focus in this contemplation is that a truly blessed person is one who is living in harmony with God's original intention for our lives. That is true human flourishing. So the focus of this contemplation is the idea of blessedness. But I want you to see the source of this blessedness. And this may take us a little bit by surprise. In fact, I believe that as David penned these words, he meant for us to be brought up just a little bit short. In other words, think about it this way. If you were going to complete this sentence, blessed is the man whose, how would you complete that sentence? This is a values type statement. What would I say? What would go in that place? Someone might say, well, boy, blessedness today would just be not having to wear a mask in church. And you know what? You would probably be right. Blessedness might be for some a full bank account. It might be, it might be freedom, the ability to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. I wonder how long, if we were penning these words, how long would it take us to come to the thoughts that David came to? Look at what he says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then in verse 2, he talks about blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. If blessedness has to do with living in harmony with God and his purpose for our lives, 
then the greatest threat to that human flourishing is going to be sin. And so David connects these two ideas. Blessedness is going to be found in, and he uses three words to describe sin, right? Transgression, an overstepping of a boundary, actually rebellion against God. He uses the word uh, iniquity or sin, which is a missing of the mark, a turning aside. Or he uses, and he uses the word iniquity, which really has the idea of a, a twistedness, a, a, a missing, a, a deterioration of that which is right and appropriate. And then he goes on to say, but there is a way for all of these things to be dealt with. Sin can be covered. What a great theme. That takes us into the Old Testament sacrificial system. Every, every Israelite would have known exactly what David was saying when he talks about the fact that sin is covered by the sacrificial system, the offering of blood, the blood of bulls and goats, which eventually leads us into the New Testament to the ultimate sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. He says transgressions can be forgiven. That word forgiven carries the idea of lifting something off. It's like a weight that's being removed. And David says, listen, blessed is the one whose transgressions have been lifted away. The guilt and the load and the weight of sin and transgression is lifted off of us. And finally, he says that this iniquity is no longer counted against us. It's no longer applied to our accounts. So David has given us a contemplation. The contemplation involves thinking about true blessedness, thinking about the enemy to that blessedness, yet the fact that there is a solution to the complexity of sin that we face in our lives. So here's the question I want to ask quickly before we move on. So what is this doing? What is David doing with these two verses in this psalm? Why are they there? What was his intended purpose? Do you know when you read the Psalms, we are supposed to read the Psalms with our emotions engaged, right? When you read Paul's epistles, you're not really reading for feeling. In fact, don't you think sometimes when Paul writes, you wish he would add a little more feeling? I mean, sometimes he comes out very logical. He's got this logically laid out argument. We've got to follow this argument. So we do that more cerebrally. But you know what? When you read the Psalms, we have to read them with our minds engaged. But you know what? We have to read them with our feelings. Because we have to, we have to sense the emotions. So what is David doing in these first two verses? Here's what I think he's doing. He's casting a vision. He's creating a desire. He's creating a longing for something. In fact, I suppose if we could put it this way, we would say that, that David is kind of laying before us, imagine a life that is lived where every failure could find a solution. Every sin could find a forgiveness. Every iniquity could be removed from our account. And I think what David wants us to do in reading these two verses and stopping and thinking about them is saying, yes, I want that kind of life. I want to live that way. I want to experience that in my own life. 
That then sets up for us the second stanza of this psalm in which David is going to share a personal testimony. This begins in verse 3 and takes us down through verse 5. This is really what I would call the heart of this psalm. This is what, where David is really headed. I have to take my hat off to David because this is a pretty brave um, disclosure on his part. I don't know how many of us, I'm sure, I, I'm sure for myself, I would, be very, I would be very reluctant to want to share my failures and my responses to those failures. And yet David is willing to take us right into this failure of his and to give us an idea to teach us and to train us about a lesson, a very important lesson that he learned as he moved through this difficult time in his life. Look what he begins in verse 3. And you know what? These are not not technical issues to get a hold of. This is a heart issue before the Lord. In verse 3, David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. Verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David says that there was a, a response that he made in the midst of a difficult situation where his decision, his choice was to be silent. And when that happened, the Bible says, he goes on to tell us that there were even physical ramifications to that choice. There was this feeling of bones being wasted away. I think David must have been feeling older than his years at that point. That aching within his own physical body as a result of his unwillingness to acknowledge his sin before the Lord. He talks about the fact that he's he's groaning all day long. The the hand of the Lord feels heavy upon him, and his vitality is is, is sucked up. And then he says in verse 5, By way of contrast, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I want us to take a minute because I think it would be really helpful for us to feel these verses. We can read them and understand the words, but I want us to really enter into more of the experience that David had. I want you to take your Bible and go to Second Samuel chapter 11. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we have recorded for us David's sin with Bathsheba and his consequent complicity in the death of Uriah. I think we're all fairly familiar with this story. There are a couple things I want you to see that's recorded for us here in this passage and then be able to to sense those in relationship to the verses that David records in Psalm 32. Let me just quickly review the story with us. We know that David is walking on his roof one night. He sees Bathsheba. 
He is attracted to her. He calls her for her. He commits adultery with her. She leaves. The next morning, he realizes there's something I've got to do about this. He starts to involve Uriah. His goal is to have Uriah come home, Bathsheba's wife, spend a night together, be able to cover the fact that she would be pregnant by, by David. Uriah has more character than to do that. Uriah puts him in a tough position, so David eventually writes a letter, sends that letter to Joab by the hand of Uriah, really plotting Uriah's death. Uriah is killed in an ensuing battle, and David comes to the point where he thinks he's pretty much covered himself. And that's what we read here in this 11th chapter. Let me note a couple things with you, though, that I want you to to sense as we read through here. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year. So the narrator is going to set He's going to set the, the, the table for us here to understand what's happening. So he says in the spring of the year, and as if that wasn't enough, he wants to make this point because it's not just the spring of the year. It's the spring of the year. It's the time when kings go forth to war. So the narrator is already tipping us to the fact that something is not quite right here. And in fact, if we didn't get it from those two phrases, he goes on to say, David sent Joab, which is okay. Joab was the captain of the host. So he sends Joab, but still something doesn't seem right. So David sends Joab, his servant with him and all Israel. And then he wants us to know what they're out there doing. He says to us, and they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. And then we get the contrasting statement, right? And now we're, now we're certain something is out of place here. Because in the spring of the year, in a time when kings go out to battle, when David has sent ahead the armies and all of Israel, the Bible says, but David remained at Jerusalem. So we're set for something not good. Then in verses 2 down through uh, verse 5, read about how this liaison with Bathsheba comes about. And I want you to note what is said at the end of verse 5. It says, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David. And this is, this is, This phrase is supposed to, I believe the narrator has positioned it for it to stand out to us. And it simply says, I am pregnant. I want you to think for a moment about what goes through David's mind and heart at this point. This sets a a desperate scenario for him. David now faces a choice. He can, he can turn to the Lord in forgiveness, or he can seek to cover his sin. In the next few verses, really verses 6 down through verse 25, we read, or actually down through verse 27, we read how David responded. Let me set again in your mind what David has just said in Psalm 32 and verse 3. When I kept silent. As I read through this passage this week, I underlined just certain words. And I want to just read through those words with you because I want you to get a sense for what's happening here. 
In verse 6, the Bible says, so David sent. In verse 7, the Bible says, David asked how Joab was doing once Uriah came. In verse 8, the Bible says, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house. In verse 10, the Bible says again, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? In verse 12, the Bible says, Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will, I will send you back. Verse 13, And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. Verse 14, In the morning David wrote a letter. Then you drop down to verse 25, David said to the messenger, And then in verse 27, the Bible says, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. I want you to sense the activity of David. This is David, a man attempting to cover himself. This is David doing everything he can. Some really uh, incredible exchanges go on within this passage, right? But the thing that I want you to see is this. Look down at verse 25, and it says this. David said to the messenger. So David wrote the letter. He sent the letter by the hand of Uriah. It was to put Uriah in the front of the hottest place of the battle and then to retreat from him with the intention that David would be, would be or Uriah would be slain. And that's exactly what Joab did, and that's exactly what happened. And then a messenger comes back from Joab to tell David that what he had asked for had been done. And this is what David says to the messenger. Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. That's pretty calloused. That's pretty hard hearted. Strengthen your attacks against the city and overthrow it. And then he says to the servant and encourage him. I don't doubt this has got to be one of the darkest passages in really almost in all of Scripture. And yet David, working to cover himself, believes that he has he has done the deed. He has avoided detection. But I want you to see what is said in verse 27, down the last phrase of verse 27, and it says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know what, folks, no matter how hard we try to cover our own sin, No matter what desperateness we work with, what frenzy of activity, what rationales we place to it, what coverings we try to make for it, it is always open and displeasing to the Lord. And as a result, the Bible says that that the Lord sent a prophet, the prophet Nathan, to David. And remember the story Nathan tells him. There's a guy who has a, a ewe lamb. It's the only lamb that he has. He loves that lamb. He takes care of that lamb. And then there is a rich man who has many, many 
uh, livestock to draw upon, yet a visitor comes and that he goes and steals the ewe lamb to provide to, to the visitor instead of giving out of his own stock. And you remember, look at what, David, what it says of David in response to this, verse 5 of chapter 12. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And then notice Nathan's response in verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. This must have been much like the note that came from Bathsheba that said, I am pregnant. And yet at this point, David is now in a different spirit. Because after Nathan lays out God's word to him and God's confrontation of him in verse 14, here's what David says in response to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. And now... We read in Psalm 32 and verse 5, when I acknowledged my sin to the Lord, you forgave that. When I was willing to confess it. Folks, flourishing, human flourishing is not about not sinning. It's about what we do when we sin. David said in Psalm 32, he lays out for us simply, When I kept silent, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Have you experienced that in your own life? That conviction that comes. And what David wants to say to us is simply this. Don't be silent. Don't cover. Don't hide. Don't, don't avoid but rather be sensitive to the conviction of the Lord and be willing to acknowledge our sin. Be willing to not cover that iniquity, but to confess it, to, to agree with God about it. Oh, that we had a heart in ourselves to maintain a sensitivity and an, an openness towards the Lord. I want to, and just for a second, I want you to take your Bible and turn over to Psalm 51 because... Besides seeing what David experienced when he was being silent before the Lord, I want you to experience what it was like for David to confess this sin to the Lord. Psalm 51 records for us the particular confession that David made in this situation. And I want you to just get a sense for, we won't read the whole psalm, I just want you to get a sense for what David Said, How did he express his heart in this confession? Look at what he says in beginning in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What a statement. As David is working out his plans and his coverings, doesn't he know that this is happening? Of course he does. He goes on in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me 
David now calls for cleansing. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. I wonder when the last time was that we, in prayer before the Lord, just poured out our heart in honest and open confession before the Lord. This is a part of our lives that we have to we have to develop. We have to cultivate and nurture this type of openness and transparency before the Lord, because you know what? The bottom line is the book of Hebrews says that we are already naked and open unto him with whom we have to do. And so David calls for this. And in fact, we move on then to the third stanza of this psalm, beginning in verse um, Verse 6, where David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you in a time when you may be found. This is what David is driving towards. He wants us to have this. He's exhorting us to develop this type of, of relationship, of openness and honesty before the Lord, because it is so important to our vitality and to our strength, to our ability to live a life that is honoring to God within the intended purpose of our lives. And after offering this exhortation, David ends with this conclusion. And I want us to look just quickly at this. It says in beginning in verse eight, and this should be, this is where hopefulness starts to come in because David records a promise from God. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So in this section, we have a promise. We have a response to that promise that that is uh, considered. And then we have a result. The promise is that God will guide you and he'll do so tenderly. He'll counsel you with his eye upon you. The result is found down towards the end. Look at verse uh, verse 10. It says there are two to consider. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. So one result to this promise could be sorrows and many of them. But then he says in the second part of verse 10, but steadfast love surrounds. So the two options here in regard to the promise are many sorrows or surrounded by the steadfast love of God. So what makes the difference? The difference is found in the way I respond to the promise of God's leading and counsel in my life. Look at what he says in verse 8 or verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. This is David simply saying, listen, don't don't be insensitive or obstinate. Don't be in opposition to the direction that God would set for you. Don't be like an animal that that 
unless we put it under bit and bridle, it's not going where we want it to go. It's not going to do what we want it to do. It's going to take that to bring it into rain, to rein it in, to make it sensitive. But instead, look at the other option. I can act like a, a mule without understanding, a horse or a mule, or look at verse, uh, verse 10, the last phrase, or I can trust in the Lord. You know, we think sometimes we think of trust as a large word. In this context, what trust means is to be sensitive, to be open, to be honest before the Lord, to nurture and to cultivate that closeness of relationship that when he speaks, we listen, that when he confronts, we are responding. And what David really prays for and asks in this passage is don't be silent. Be willing to acknowledge, be willing to confess, be willing to develop and, and develop and, and, and cultivate this personal, close and intimate walk with God. Failures in life are never final if we handle our failures in life according to the way God desires. And the way to do that is to maintain and cultivate a close and personal relationship with the Lord. We're going to ask our worship team to come forward. And as they come, let me just say a couple of things. First of all, I don't know where you are this morning. You may be here and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You carry a great load and weight of sin. I want to simply say to you that at the moment you would acknowledge and confess your sin to God, the Bible says that God will forgive those sins. You may be here this morning and you're a believer. You've been a Christian for many years. But there are things in your life that you know you are hiding. You are covering. Things that you would rather not bring out into the open before the Lord. Let me encourage you to be as David was. I acknowledged my sin unto the Lord. I confessed it. And he forgave the iniquity of my sin. May that be the testimony of our hearts before the Lord.